What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Eli Lair, EVP of Programming at History Channel. Now, if you're tuning in to this episode to find out what you should be pitching History Channel, maybe hear about things like buckets and other catchphrases we use in the business, uh, this is not the episode for you. Uh, because when I sat down with Eli, he had only been in the chair two months so he himself, at the time of this interview, uh, we did this a few weeks ago, uh, he himself was still trying to figure out what kind of stuff works at history. Uh, so you're not going to hear any mandates or any buzzwords like that, but you're going to hear Eli's backstory. You're going to hear the story of why he left Lifetime to go to MTV2, made the transfer over to MTV, and why he ultimately left there to come to History Channel. We're also going to talk about his heyday back at Bravo when he was responsible for a tremendous amount of hit shows that are still on the air and really define that network. This is my sit down with Eli Lair. I hope you enjoy it. So I got some bad news on the way here. Okay. I just found out that the world is ending on Saturday. Did you hear this? No. What, yes. what do I have to look forward to? Well, uh, apparently, it's some sort of planet crashing into ours scenario, and it's uh, this Saturday. I'm really, I'm really informing you of this for the first time. This is all out there on the news. Yes. Right now. No, I've not been to the New York Times yes. today. So, if nothing else, I'm just glad we got to do this finally. Well, exactly. Because we've been putting this off for a long time. No. So, if this is my last testament, you know, it'll exist for posterity for two days. Right. No one's ever going to hear this. No. But I appreciate the time. Yeah. But as I was driving here, I realized we've never actually done this, though. Like, we've never had a lunch. We've never grabbed a drinks. Like, I've known you professionally for a few years. Right. But we've never just had the chance to, like, kick it and, like, for me to actually hear your story. This will be good. It'll be fresh then. I won't be repeating myself. No, completely. Which yeah. I always worry about. You, you worry about repeating yourself? No, you know what I mean. Don't you? Yeah. Sometimes you have those stories that you whip out, like in pitches. Don't you find like professional lunches and meetings are just like dating? Like, will you have like your kind of go-to anecdotes? Yeah, you know what's going to be interesting about this for me is I feel like part of the reason why I like being a buyer and I like the unscripted business is it gives me an opportunity to have people in my office and ask them invasive questions right, right. because I'm one of those people where when I go to a party, I'm generally not prone to talk about myself. I huh. prefer to ask people a million questions. And I think that's part of what I love about unscripted is sort of the idea that you get to sit with interesting people and try and figure out the most compelling things about them. So I just mean, it's going to be, this might be really weird and uncomfortable for me to talk about myself extensively, but we'll try it. You're doing fine so far. Okay. How long have you been here now? This is two months. Two months here at History. Yeah. I mean, three months previous, three years previously at A&E Networks. Right. With a brief one year. Uh, a little hiatus. A little hiatus. So gonna, I know the We're going to get into that. Yeah, yeah. I know the company well and everything that's great about it, but two months in the History role. Do you – how often do you need to be in New York? I think, you're, you're, again – You're based here, right? I'm based here, which was sort of a prerequisite for me to take the job because I had lived in New York for a long time. Mm -hmm. I had gone to school there. Um, but I moved my family back here about five years ago. I grew up in L.A. 
Oh. So I just wasn't – my kids are fairly young. I wasn't interested in moving back across the country again. Right. So, yeah. So I'm based here, but I think, again, I've been here eight weeks. I think I've made four or five trips to New York going again next week. So I have a very understanding wife. Yeah, I think initially – it's important to just be present there. I mean, that's where the vast majority of the team is. Right. I think as everyone gets acclimated, that'll hopefully slow down to a more humane schedule. That's the hope. Yeah. But was that was that an impediment at any point to you coming back into the fold over here that you were going to be based in L.A.? And that you won't be able to be stationed with where the majority of the team is? Or was Amy and Rob and Nancy, were they just like, we don't care, Eli, we just want to have you back? Yeah, I think they were very understanding. I was pretty transparent from the moment we started talking about it that I needed to be in L.A. for my family. It's just where I'm comfortable at this point in my life. And how many kids? How many? What are the ages? Uh, three kids, eight, six, and two. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, this is – look, having lived in both places with kids, I've just found L.A. a little easier. And as I said, I have a big family here, and you need bodies to throw at the problem. Well, that's true. The in-laws are crucial. Exactly. Where did you grow up out here? I grew up in Los Feliz. Oh, so you're okay. So you're back in Silver Lake now. Exactly. And you grew I have one mile away. Yeah, and like eight minutes from where I am now. And my parents are still in the house I grew up in. No way. I have lots of brothers and sisters and cousins who are all sort of on the east side. So it's really it's uh, yeah, it's very helpful and very nice to be back here. What high school? I'm a proud product of LAUSD. Look at you, K through twelve. Not a private no. school man at all. Uh, well, you know there was a I. I went to Harvard-Westlake for one semester in 10th grade, okay. did not like it, and transferred back to – transferred to the big public school, North Hollywood High School. So which, you kind of like, like Ryan Atwood from the OC when you went to Harvard-Westlake? You were this public school kid coming in? Yeah, exactly. I was an orphan or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Little chip uh, on your exactly. I would left from Chino. The, the rough side of tracks. Yeah, Chino. Yeah, yeah you know the reference. You yeah, know the yeah. OC reference. Um, By the way, let's remind people. Los Feliz and Silver Lake, when you were growing up there – was not Los Feliz and Silver Lake as we know it now. That is a great point, which I try and remind people. I always remember I was away in college and Swingers came out. Dude. And all of a Eli, sudden. I was about to go there. I was going to go there, but I held off on my impulse to talk Swingers. No, no, no. That's, that's exactly right. It came out and all of a sudden it became this happening place. And I'd be reading about Los Feliz in Vogue magazine and like yep. Madonna was moving there. And it was, I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. It was a lovely place to grow up. You know, it's it's a beautiful neighborhood, but when I was a kid in L.A., the center of gravity in the city was much farther west. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a huge reason to ever come east of, like, La Cienega, and so it's been very interesting for me to move back here after 15 years away and to see, you know, the transformation of Hollywood, the transformation of downtown. Right. You know, what Los Feliz and Silver Lake have become. That's crazy. Yeah, no, you're right. So, until Swingers, until the movie made the Dresden like a landmark bar and Marty and Elaine and the whole thing. And, totally, and, and the well, Derby. The and... Derby. No one was going out on that side of town. That, that was where my first apartment was. Is that true? Out of school in, in 04. Uh, I moved in with my buddy in Silver Lake. And even at that point, it was not nice. It was basically just East Hollywood, right? Yes. You know, and you're on, you on the cusp between Hollywood and downtown, basically. And you could not just walk the length of Sunset all the way to Dodger Stadium like you can now yeah. and just bar hop along the way. It was not that kind of neighborhood. Just a little dangerous. Where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to Columbia. 
So I moved. Which Columbia? Columbia in New York. Okay. So the Ivy League Columbia. Yes. Yes. You're a um, humble man. No, I'm not humble. I loved it. It was great. It's it's a funny story how I ended up there. I had a best friend in high school who really wanted to go to New York one summer, the summer between our junior year and our senior year. And we didn't know any better, so we signed up for a program at Barnard College, which is the all-girls school within (laughs) Columbia. So we show up in New York. We're 16. And weirdly, neither of our parents – neither of our parents must have known that Barnard was the girls' school either. So we show up at the summer program for six weeks in New York. And there's 10 guys and 110 girls all living in a dorm on the Upper West Side. And this is suffice like a, this to is say, like 80s, it was it, – exactly. It's like an it's 80s like Ranch comedy. weird Seth Rogen comedy or yeah. something. And it was amazing. And I sort of fell in love with New York huh. for the obvious reasons and also because when you were 16 back then, you could get in a lot of trouble in New York in a way that you couldn't growing up in L.A. Yep. And it was just an amazing experience, and I came back from there and thought, God, if Columbia is half as good as that summer was, I want to come Got there. It. So there was not some grand plan to always end up there at an Ivy League school, but uh, it ended up being an amazing experience. because It's it's a very non-traditional college experience because there's not a ton of campus life because right. you're in the middle of – Manhattan. But who needs it? Like, who needs campus life when you have city life? Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, look, some people, I miss, I never went to a football game in four years. Right. You know, there are things like that <laughs> that probably would have been nice to experience. But anyway, it was it was great. I studied history and political science there. Got it. Um, really? Yeah. And that ties you back to today. Look at that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know there was a, a pretty no, 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 show that was a history guy from And you. look, and to Nancy's credit, she had always known that that was kind of what I truly loved. And there was, you know, there was a path in life. I, I thought about going to graduate school for history. Huh. She's never quite pulled the trigger. So, no, I've always been drawn to this in my free time. It's what I like reading is sort of nonfiction and history. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I'm looking this, at your desk, and your desk is piled with hardcover books, but a lot of them just from the naked eye. I recognize a lot of them from my own mantle, a lot of entertainment-related nonfiction books. Yeah, these are the Hollywood books that my wife has kicked out of our house. Yeah, I've been. So the history books are still on the bookshelf at home. Well, didn't you work with... And let's just go there. You worked for Ovitz at one point, didn't you? Yeah, you want me, so you're skipping. So my I'm skipping first, a little bit. So what was yeah. the first job okay, I had out of college? So, so the first job I had out of college, it's actually... It's a sort of funny story how I ended up at it. My senior year in college, I was on the Upper West Side. I was just looking for things to do, and I saw – I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. You can see the poster. Oh, sure. Um, And I saw that a guy was writing a book about Bruce Springsteen, and I just emailed him out of the blue. He lived in New York, and I said, hey – I love Springsteen. Can I be your researcher, your intern, just work for free with you as you're doing this book? And he's ended up being a lifelong friend, but he was – what it turned out was he was actually a political reporter named mm-hmm. Eric Alterman who was just writing this book on the side. And in working for Eric for a year, his best friend at the time was George Stephanopoulos. Oh, my gosh. So I got to know George a little bit during my senior year. And is George working for Clint at this time? No, George is at ABC News at the time. So this is 99. So he had left the White House after the 96 campaign and was transitioning into being what he is now, a journalist. Um, And I got to know George 
just through through Eric and um, it, the timing just worked out. So when I graduated, George needed a new assistant. So my first job, and it was an amazing first job, was as his assistant at ABC News. And for me, wow. it was really the perfect combination of the things I was interested in because I had always loved – it didn't really have a name then, but unscripted TV. Right. You know, the thing that I've thought about now is growing up in the 90s, the most interesting stuff on TV in many ways was the nonfiction. It was the, it was the big news cases of the decade, right? It was the riots and the OJ case. Absolutely. And kind of the rise of celebrity gossip, Michael Jackson stuff. It was all that, the real-life headlines. Really. Well, there was, there was absolutely that. But it was also, you know, at the time, scripted. There hadn't been the renaissance there is now. So a lot of scripted, right? None of the HBO programming existed other than Larry Sanders and Oz. And the network stuff was generally fairly formulaic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you had ER and And the West Wing. Law and Order and West Wing. I mean, those great shows. And the sitcoms were really good. But the rise of cable hadn't really emerged yet and, and taken over. No. So, I mean, I remember the stuff I really responded to and that felt freshest to me was the real world, yeah. taxicab confessions, cops. Mm. There was sort of a, a visceralness, I don't know if that's a word, to them that I, that I always responded to. So news weirdly felt like some combination of kind of the history and politics that I had loved and studied and that kind of real-world storytelling. That's very cool. Turns out I didn't want to be a news producer, which I didn't know (laughs) (laughs) until I got there. I mean, I loved the job, and I was there for the 2000 election. Mm. You know, got to travel with with George as he did that. Got to be in the newsroom, you know, as Peter Jennings is sort of dealing with the recount and all of that craziness. But I also figured out... You know, I didn't have the metabolism to be a news producer. Oh, yeah. No. Like that's a very specific type of person who loved being sent to Florida for 40 days and the right. recount and like being in the middle of all the action. And Pe- I just – it wasn't for me. No. Pe- people think our arm of the industry is for crazy people. But if you're living and breathing news every day, that's a whole other exercise and a whole other temperament. Yeah. There was – I didn't have that – personality and I was able to look at the people that were three and four and five years ahead of me who were really good at it. And luckily I had the self-awareness to know that, you know, it wasn't for me. Okay. So where'd you go on from there? So at that point I moved back to LA um, because I'd been in New York for six plus years and I ended up um, almost getting, I didn't know this existed. It was like headhunted to be an assistant yeah, I did that too. I, I used the Friedman Agency. I don't even. I don't. It was remember. a placement agency that I got my resume to, and they got me my first interview at CAA. Was it something like that? So it was something like that. So it was a person reached out to me because I guess I had the primary qualification, which was I had been an assistant to someone famous and important. Right. And through them, I ended up – my next job was as Michael Ovitz's assistant okay. at Artist Management Group. This is crazy. This is crazy. I cannot believe that. How long were you on that desk for? Uh, almost a year. Okay. So I'm looking at your desk right now. Like We talked about all the books. Yeah. And there's a Disney book on there. Mm-hmm. Michael Ovitz ran Disney at one point. Yeah. You've got The Operator, the David Geffen book, which is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. I feel like I see Barry behind there, the ESPN book. Yeah, yeah. Right? Same- I have a weakness for oral history. Right, yeah. And then The, the Mail Room, right? you got yeah, all the, yeah. all the greatest hits. And Ovitz is like a shining star. 
of all these books, the same authors behind the ESPN book, same ones who wrote the CA yeah. book. Uh, so Ovitz is the star of that. He's a star, he's a he's a leading man in the Geffen book as well because they had a big rivalry. Disney Wars, Disney Wars, the Bernie Brillstein uh, autobiography, yeah. which was one of my favorites. Ovitz had wars with all these guys. Yeah. So when you find him at AMG, he's a former founder of CA. We should explain yeah. this to people. Former founder of CAA would go on to run Disney, made millions of dollars. And then started his own – was it an agency or a management firm? a management company? firm. Management firm. With okay. Rick Yorn and Julie Yorn who That's were right. managing people like uh, DiCaprio, Cameron Diaz. Right. And later after he would leave, Yorn would leave and start the firm, right? He, AMG, the end of my tenure with Ovitz was essentially when he sold AMG to Jeff Quatnitz in the firm. Wow. That's when you were there. I was there for the last year. Um, How did that interview go? Tell me about the interview. <laughs> there were many interviews really? to end up on his desk. And again, I But not should... many with him. No, never with him. Right. There were people to interview the assistants for was there him. Only, was it just you or did, was there two no, assistants? No, no. There were three or four assistants. Really? Yeah. There was sort of one person who just did the phones. Right. One person who sort of did personal and house stuff. Um, and then I sort of floated and did special projects. Okay, so you didn't have to be on the phones with them all the time. I would be on the phone sometimes. It was okay. sort of you you, you, you plugged up. leaks and did a little bit of everything. Okay. And it, look, it was in many. It was a very challenging year. I mean, you've look, you've worked yeah, sure. for a sure. high powered personality. You work your ass off. It mm-hmm. was a lot of twelve hour days. It's. Um, he was under a tremendous amount of stress during that time mm-hmm. because it was the last year of the company and he was doing some amazing things. He was executive producing gangs of New York at the time. Yep. He was trying to bring a football team to LA. That's right. Um, there were things like that, but the company had also, I think, struggled mm-hmm. more than he had anticipated. They had launched a huge TV business that I don't think had worked out as well as he had hoped. So there was, you know, it was a sprawling, expensive business. There was a TV group. There was a major film group. There was a sports group. Where were the offices? Uh, the corner of Beverly and Wilshire. Okay. That's not, that's not cheap real estate. No. The, I will tell you the most amazing thing about working for him was the art. I think yeah, he's he, a huge art guy. Yeah. My experience with him was he loved art almost above all else. And that... That office had the most amazing collection of photography you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So outside of the sports group were the the most famous iconic sports photographs wow. in the world. Outside of the film group were like Gregory Crudson photographs. There were Warhol strips everywhere. And then you would go to his house and the art was just like unfathomable. That's so so cool. it was, yeah, it was an amazing thing to be around. And look, I learned a tremendous amount about, you know, attention to detail. Mm-hmm. You know, you did not want to screw up everything. There were very specific systems for doing almost everything. And at least when there's multiple assistants in the office, they all teach each other what, exactly. the, what the protocols are. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the company sells. Yes. 
how do you find out about that as, as one of the assistants? Do you read about it when, it when it's out, you know, in public news? Or did you already hear rumblings that this is coming down the pipe? Yeah, I mean, I think there were rumblings because we would be on certain calls. And that, sure. was, that was an amazing thing about working for him is you were privy to some of that stuff. And he was able to, you know, he'd do 15 calls in a row, every one about a very, very different subject. Mm-hmm. You know, talking to Martin Scorsese and then talking to a CEO. Mm. And he could have all those balls in the air and just be okay. on point for all of it. Okay, we'll get off of it in a second. I just want to yeah. ask one last question about this. So a guy like that who has that kind of reputation, yeah, you know, I believe that you don't go that far and become that successful without some genius in there. Yeah. What was an example of genius that you saw out of him when you were working on his desk? Is it the way he communicated to clients? Is it the way he maneuvered between network and 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 writers and, and creatives, what was like the one thing you took away that was like, that's why he's Michael Ovitz and that's why he got this far? That's a great question. I mean, look, I, the thing that was most impressive was what I just talked about. His, his ability to move between wildly varied worlds mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. art to sports yeah. to film to managing the most high-powered clients and right. sort of move seamlessly – between all those worlds and be incredibly fluent in all of them and have yeah. a deft touch. It's incredibly rare in all of them. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating thing to observe and to be doing at the highest level, at the very highest yeah, level, yeah, yeah. even during the time I worked for him. So, in terms of how it came to an end, he sold the company. A majority of the company moved over to the firm, and Michael sort of went into retirement at that point. Right. And I stayed with him for for a little bit, but it was very clear he wasn't he wasn't doing very much. Mm-hmm. And he was very generous with me, but sort of said, "Hey, look, you seem like you're an ambitious guy. You probably want to find, <laughs> you know, something else to do." Yeah. So where would you um, go from there? So at that point, and by the way, you've got a pretty good resume at that point. Well, so I was going to say the nice thing at that point was. People were willing to take meetings with me, yeah. if nothing Just else, because the they were curious about, you know. So I met with a lot of people, and it's very funny. Well, it's not very funny, but um, the person who ended up helping me get my next job was John Sade, who I just reached out to and no said, I leave Michael, and I reached out to John and said, hey, can I just sit with you? I'm, I'm interested in figuring out what to do next. And John was incredibly generous with his time and put me in touch with a guy he knew named Rob Weiss, who was at VH1. Okay. And then Rob took a chance on me, allowed me to make what is, you know, the hardest leap in this business from assistant to right. not an assistant. Right. And he offered me a gig at VH1, so I moved back to New York. Wait, just like that, you're now above assistant level? So you've worked for Ovitz, you meet Rob Weiss. And what's Rob Weiss's position? That was a period where VH1 had about five different development groups. Okay. Rob was running one of them in New York. Okay. Um, yeah, no, look, I, it was incredibly lucky, and I will always be grateful because I – Exactly. How many times you can you understand why I didn't want to move back to New York Coast to coast. Like, this is becoming a, a trend. I feel like every job you're, you're – Yeah, my poor wife I've dragged back and forth a couple times. Oh, my God. No, I, I ended up in New York for a while. Yeah, look, Rob took a chance on me. I had no qualifications to be a junior executive. Yeah. I had done nothing but – 
you know, be an assistant to high-powered, demanding right. people. But he – look, he he gave me the break that I think everyone needs. What is what is VH1 at this time? Have they even done like Tequila Tequila yet at this no, point? No, no. It was a very interesting time because – Is it just pop-up videos? What is it? It was – they had had that peak – where you know under Jeff Gaspin, where right. they had behind the music pop up video before or... they were stars, yeah, and those shows had you know they had just burned out, mm-hmm. and then they had launched a whole slate of wildly ambitious shows that failed miserably, okay. like the Zach Galifianakis show, That's right. Military Diaries, things like that. So it ended up being you know it was an interesting lesson for me in tv sometimes the most interesting time to be at a channel is when they have no idea what they're doing right and you get to take the most chances so i was there um for 3 years i always think about it it was like graduate school mm-hmm. because i got to learn how you make tv and the great thing about vh1 at the time was they were trying everything you got to learn how to make game shows clip shows doc series yep you know, it live was a, events, it specials. Was, yeah, it was a little bit of everything. So you're just thrown in. How how many years are you there? Yeah, I always remember I was I was there for three years. Um, yeah, I was thrown in. I remember sitting my first day sitting in a pitch because you don't even know. How I the didn't know what works. I didn't know what a pitch was. Right, like right. I had never been to pitch. I had never worked at a TV channel and seen my boss take a pitch. You also don't know what's a good idea and what's not. No, I mean that is well, you, you never do. Right, but, that's you're but always. You also, you also don't know at that point. I guess to be more specific, you don't know what's been pitched a million times and what hasn't been. Absolutely not. Right. And that said, this is 2003. So, every idea so everything's kind of new. Kinda new. Like true. Nobody knows that the form is being made That's true. in that moment. But to your <laughs> point, I'd never watched a cut and given notes. I had right. never looked at a budget. I mean, luckily, there set. were a lot of smart, interesting people there. You know, Corey Abraham was there. Lauren Gellert was there. So I, you know, I worked with them. And the great thing about Viacom, Viacom at that point was really an amazing company. It was kind of the inmates running the asylum. Mm -hmm. And if you were a young person who wanted to be in TV, there was even at VH1, which was kind of the redheaded stepchild to MTV, (laughs) there was still amazing opportunities to to sort of learn on the fly and get your hands dirty. Yeah, I mean the alumni from that Viacom MTV VH1 training ground is vast. I mean there's I mean you're like I feel like number 8 who I've talked to on this show that yeah. has a background where they cut their teeth working in-house for Viacom in some form. Yeah, I really think about in the in that period and I'm sure going back even further, but sort of in the mid 2000s, there was no better media company to work for. Oh yeah. In a lot of ways. Oh yeah. No. And I'm eternally grateful for the experience. And it is, it's what I said. It was really like graduate school where I learned how you make TV and they allowed me to do that with a shocking lack of guardrails. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So three years, you said three years there. Do you go there to Bravo? Yeah. So straight from there, three years of experience at VH1, and you become a VP at Bravo where you were – were you heading development on the West Coast? No, so they hired me as a couple people I knew from Viacom. Jerry Leo and Corey Abraham had moved to Bravo. Okay. Um, and they needed a director in New York. Oh, okay. So I was a woman named Amy Intracasso Davis. Sure. Hired who's now, me, who's, who's now at E. Who's now at E. It was a game show. Um, 
brought me in. And yeah, I ended up being at Bravo for eight years, almost eight years. It was fantastic. But starting as a director, starting as a director, there was, it was just Amy and I in New York. And then eventually in probably two years, Amy moved over to Oxygen. Mm -hmm. And then shortly thereafter, yeah, I ended up running development for Bravo first out of New York. And then they very generously moved me back to LA. And you married at this point? Yes. Okay, so now you bring the wife. That's the first time you move the wife? No, she came during the Ovitz years. Oh, wow. You met her that early? We met in college, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we've been together since uh, the end of college. So, yeah, no, that's, wow. that's a whole other long this story. Is, I got... brought her out to L.A. She She's from the East Coast. Oh, wow. During my year with Ovitz, where I was like, hey, welcome to your new city. I'm going to go work 12 hours a day. Jeez. You'll figure it out. So I bought her a puppy. But, uh, you know, that only gets you so far. And that negotiation only went so far until it turned into three kids. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, She is your ride or die, man. She's made a lot of moves with you. Yeah. She is a very lovely, generous of spirit person. So Corey, did Corey get moved from Bravo to Oxygen? And did that open you coming back to LA? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Because I I remember when Corey Abraham moved from Bravo to Oxygen. I remember that being a big move. And and then this this name, Eli Lair, is now taking pictures for Bravo on the West Coast. And that's the first time I heard your name. Yeah, no, I had been in – you know, I had been a New York executive my entire career. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I moved out here six years ago, give or take. Has it only been six years since you first came out here? Yes. In, do you understand how many places you've been in just six years? I mean, that's a crazy. Like, I, yeah, I don't want it to make it, make it seem like I'm that flighty. Let's, no, let's keep in mind no. I was at Bravo for almost eight years. Eli, it has nothing to do with you. It's about the nature of the business. Well, that is also that's true. what it really is. It has nothing to do with you. You're one of the most like respected guys in town. We all know that. But in, it's only been six years since you first came out as a VP for Bravo, and right. now here you are, EVP. For history. I mean, it's crazy how much can go down in six years. Yeah, it's been a great... It's, a, it's kind I of a lifetime it. in this business. We've seen companies start and sell within five years. That is absolutely true. Um, all right. So the hit list at Bravo. I got to go through this list. Okay. This, this, and this is taken from different press clippings I, I read as I was boning up for this. Housewives of New Jersey on, on your watch. Flipping out. Millionaire Matchmaker. Rachel Zoe Project. Vanderpump Rules. One of my favorite shows on television, without any question. And watch what happens live. Okay. What was the relationship with Andy Cohen before he kind of left, you know, to just become full-time talent and producer when he was very much like an ex- – he was – it didn't exist. Like he was an executive. Yeah, Andy was my boss. He was an executive who was running the network development, but also was the face of the network and all their reunion shows as well. Yeah, Andy was the head of programming. He ran development and production for Bravo for many years. Was that and was odd? an amazing executive? Yeah. Um, was it odd to like see your boss in the shows? You know, it weirdly isn't if you know Andy because the first time you meet Andy, you realize he's not like any other executive and he actually does belong in front of the camera. So from the outside, it might have seemed like an odd transition, but if you've spent time around him, it makes perfect sense. So, no, I mean, Watch What Happens was legitimately the most fun I've ever had in TV (laughs) because it was just – it was Andy, Michael Davies, and I, it was this little project that cost almost no money. Yeah. 
that was sort of like Wayne's World that we were putting on literally in a closet in Michael's office. Right. And because it was such a minimal investment and it was live at midnight, there were no notes from anyone. It was very right. unclear if anyone at the channel was even watching it. It could fly under the radar. It could fly under the radar, which is the most fun. It's also live, which is great because mm-hmm. you just do it and you're done with it. That's right. And then you move on. So whatever mistakes there are, it's 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 part of the plan part of the magic of live tv yeah and with that show it really was i mean that was the interesting learning with that show the the sort of homemade nature of it ended up being a large part of its appeal in a world where every other talk show was on a huge stage and very Mm -hmm. glossy the fact that that show had kind of a public access aesthetic actually totally the lo-fi charm the lo-fi uh intimacy that it, that it had with the audience is, is what made it. Yeah, you know, it was it, it didn't look like anything else on TV at the time, and it had that nice interactive live element of taking the calls and you know fans, you know Bravo fans being able to talk to the cast members and all that. It's like an institution now. Yeah, that was it was a really satisfying, exciting process because over my last two years there in New York, I got to watch that show go from sort of a throwaway on the channel to yeah to a really you know, I don't think that show gets the credit it deserves mm. for inaugurating a little bit of the this trend towards, you know, low cost talk that's all over cable. The yeah. idea of post shows, post shows for sure. I mean, that was the original post show, right? Yeah, Michael it's Davies so- has done very well in that business. Yes, he has. Of He's cornered the market of that of that form. And look, Michael is so smart because he is able to produce those shows. On a shoestring budget that makes them undeniably appealing business <laughs> ventures. No, I get it. I think a lot of people honestly just forget that Andy was an executive like us. Like, oh, yeah. I think we all just look at him now as a host and a talent. He's on Love Connection. But I think majority of the people that know Andy Cohen do not even remember or never knew that he was actually a, a full-time TV executive running a channel. I really don't think a lot of people remember that. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And it's been as a sociological – um, experiment. It's been fascinating for me to watch someone I know so well and someone who I knew as sort of a civilian transform into, yeah. you know, a celebrity that gets name checked at the Emmys. It's been, That's it's been true. a lot of fun to watch. All right. So during that time, I mean, we're talking about a lot of extreme personalities, housewives, Rachel Zoe, Patty Stanger, Andy, who is the biggest pain in the ass? You're gonna work. You're gonna work at history the rest of your career. You're never gonna work at NBC Uni ever again. You're out of that, right? You're gonna be here for the next fifty years. There's no reason. Yeah, you can't sadly, speak. I'll still hear about it. No, look, I will. What I've learned about this job is, and I would imagine it's true in the male space as well. The same thing that makes people unbe- unbelievably compelling and dynamic reality characters can also make them um you know challenging to manage difficult camera yeah um that's certainly not the case with all of them there are plenty of talent i worked with at bravo and otherwise that were lovely it's the crazy grounded people but i it is it is kind of the devil's bargain of our business to some extent i'm very comfortable with that so who would have been the biggest devil's bargain 
I mean, if you can't say, you can't I say. Ca- I mean, I can't say because I'm still friends with some of them. And, <laughs> you're, you know, still they're still on the, the air. Yeah. With some of the you, know, you work with people for years and you, you <laughs> no, develop listen. relationships in spite of your, your better judgment. Okay, give me this. I knew you were going to answer that question, so I prepared yeah. a second question. Who is the surprisingly lowest maintenance? Who is the person that I wouldn't think would be the most chill or easy to get along with that, that actually is? Well, look, Andy Cohen is obviously the lowest maintenance because right. he had spent years dealing with high maintenance talent. That's, so that's he, he knew not to fall into that trap. And he also – what made him amazing was he produced himself better than anyone ever could. That's true. Um, who else was low maintenance? I, I did a show for many years called Tabitha Takes Over. Oh, sure. With Tabitha Coffee, who it was with uh, sure. Reveille. That's right. Um, and she was – she was an amazing piece of talent. That's a good answer. Truly a pleasure to work That's with. That's a good answer. I would not I would not anticipate that. Which is funny because her character and that is a part of herself was sort of a Gordon Ramsay and people, type who would go into businesses and start yelling at them from the minute she walked in the door, which takes a certain type of personality, but off camera she was And people describe Gordon the same way, by the way. People say Gordon isn't the public persona. That's really interesting. And that behind the that. scenes he's actually not that person. Um, all right. So then after eight years of Bravo, yeah, you move on to Lifetime. Yes. Was there just a – why Lifetime? Why the move? Was there a big opening there and you were ready to take a step up? What, what happened? Yeah, it was – my Bravo experience was truly wonderful and I really did love working with everyone there. I, I loved Andy. Francis Barrick had been incredible to me. Um, you know, part of what precipitated it was Lauren Zelaznik had been my boss my entire time there. And a few months before I left, she had left the channel. Mm. Um, so that just felt like a, an interesting moment for me. And there was also, look, the magic of Bravo is that it is the most clearly defined brand you can imagine when it comes to unscripted. It is. The flip side of that from a development standpoint is, you know, if you're not careful, it can feel like you're repeating yourself. Mm -hmm. And I had spent the last few years making variations on a theme, right? right? The most successful category for Bravo, especially towards the end of my time there, was ensemble docus about rich people in conflict. So you find yourself just doing different permutations of that. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I did some shows I really love there. Like I thought Below Deck was an interesting, you know, sure. an interesting twist on that. Southern Charm, Vanderpump Rules. I love all of those shows. But there was definitely a sense my last year there that I was sort of repeating. I, was, I felt like I was repeating myself and mm-hmm. I was running out of ways to uh, – to keep the work interesting, hmm. if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And lifetime. By the way, eight, eight years is, is a lifetime in itself in this business. Yeah. To, to be at one place. And it was an amazing evolution for the channel. And I always, you know, and I was there as the channel exploded. There were many more people who were more responsible than that for me, like Amy, like Francis, like Andy. But it was an amazing run to be on mm-hmm. as the channel went from sort of a a slightly fringy arts channel to a pop culture juggernaut with housewives and chef and runway and things like that. But, you know, lifetime was really interesting for me because it was a channel 
that was in the female space, which was one I was pretty familiar with from my time at Bravo, but had struggled to get a toehold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as I talked about earlier, I'm always interested in coming into channels when there's an opportunity for growth. Yeah. You know, buy low, sell high. I, look, I think when you – I don't know if it was when you went there or at your next stop at MTV2, but I, rem, I think we talked briefly at one point, and I felt the same way when you went there. I felt the same way when Jason Dinsmore went to CMT. Yeah. Like they had a brand, but their ratings had nowhere to go but up at that point. Yeah. And it was a great opportunity for whoever would step into that role. And it seemed like Lifetime was primed for that when you got there. Yeah, and there was also a huge appeal in working with Nancy Dubuque and Rob Chernow, mm -hmm. who were two people who had an unbelievable track record in the unscripted space and were, you know, it was very flattering that they wanted me to come in and run unscripted at the channel. It's a great culture behind the scenes over here across all the No, it really is. is. It yeah. really is. And look, the other thing about Lifetime that was interesting for me was Bravo was such a tightly defined brand, even though Lifetime was still in the female space, it felt like there was a little more open feel. Like, oh my God, I can make a show about a middle class person. Right. I can make a show about someone who's overweight. Mm -hmm. You know, Bravo, there were so many sort of brand restrictions. Yes. That are part of what makes the channel great, but also part of what makes it difficult to develop for. And Lifetime didn't really have any of that. Well, you could do things that were, yeah, a little bit more uh, grounded, a little bit more uh, middle America, whereas Bravo was gloss, upscale glossy and, and upscale. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I totally get it. I totally get how after a while, you know, you're getting creatively stifled just kind of only being able to develop in one sort of specific lane. I get that. Yeah. And it wasn't, just to be clear, it wasn't sort of stifled by my bosses at Bravo. No, it was yeah. really what the audience came to Bravo yeah. for. The yeah, audience yeah. was telling us, this is what we want from you. Mm -hmm. um, and did Project Runway make the, the switch over? Project Runway had left. So I was Were Project you Runway. It? Exactly. It had come to Lifetime before me. Right. So you had been at Bravo during that whole mess. Yeah, luckily did not really have to deal with that mess. Right. was very removed from it. But had the pleasure of working on it when I came to Lifetime. And, and then inheriting it when you got back over there. Yeah. Little Women. Yes. Tr True Tory. True Tory. Man, I don't remember what the ratings were. I just remember that that was really a game changer in terms of the real-time yeah. producing of it all. And it was done by Studio Lambert and, and the folks at All3 where I'm at now. But I think for everybody in the industry, we were like, oh, man, hopefully this real-time thing catches on. Now, you have to have the right characters and the right moment in time that demands it be done in that model. But the model itself for producers is much better because there's less time to beat us down in post. Yeah. And there's, and there's less scrutiny that, go, that goes into it all. Kind of like a little bit why you liked the live model you know, back when you yeah. were Bravo. Uh, talk about the model for that show specifically and the conversations and having to make it real time. And how was that whole experience? Yeah, that's one of the shows I'm actually most proud of that I've worked on. Hmm. And it was just a crazy confluence of circumstances. Um, and all of the credit goes to Greg Goldman at Studio Lambert, yeah. who was really the brains behind the whole thing. He, he came into me at the beginning of March with the idea for it. Mm -hmm. And that show premiered in mid-April. What? So the fact that yeah, that I mean that, that is the most that is the most amazing part. The fact that deals even got done that the quickly. Whole thing. I mean, and the magic of it was we had a hole 
on the schedule in April and May that it fit perfectly. And look, that show was a huge, huge gamble. And yeah. when you talk about what's great about the culture at A&E Networks, to me that show is indicative of what's so great about that place. Mm. It came to me. I was passionate about it, even though there were a fair number of people who who thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> They still – look, Nancy and Rob still let me do it because mm. I was passionate about it and I, I could make a relatively well-reasoned case for why we should try it. And then Greg just executed it at an unbelievably Did, high level and you have that sort of crazy alchemy that happens when you know you get talent at the right time or in that case the wrong time as their life is imploding yes exactly i mean goldman did goldman come in saying we have to do this in real time or is it because the show was ordered so quickly need to air so quickly that made it have to be done in real time no i think he always wanted to do it in real time because he thought the story was unfolding it was in happening real right time okay. in the tabloid so wouldn't it be cool if we were you know, he on right. the air in parallel to Us Weekly telling these stories. He was right. He really was. And look, that's an easy thing to say to actually figure out the production infrastructure to pull it off and then to deliver cuts on those timelines that were as good as those cuts were was mm-hmm. pretty – yeah, it was a really – sounds weird to say that about a – a celeb reality show, but it was a really, it was a really unique, special experience. Because so often, you know, you gamble on those shows, and then they, they're not quite what you imagine them to be. It's right. very rare in my career where you buy a show, and then what, what you end up with is actually, you know, exponentially greater than you imagined. But honestly, there's no, there's no substitute for talent that have been through it once before. You know, you always know when you find those pieces of talent that have lived through their own doc series before in some other nature, yeah. they know exactly what to do when the lights come on and you know they're going to deliver. You know, like I did that. I did, I did Dog the Bounty Hunters show at CMT after he had been on A&E forever. They knew exactly what to do when the lights were on and they, everything they do in the show is 100% real. They really do go to a town and yeah. in four days they will find that person, they will bounty hunt and they will bring him in. And, and he will really give him a sermon in the back of that truck. It was all real. And there's just no substitute for reality stars that have experience and know exactly what they do. And the, Tori and Dean, they were going through a hard time, but they, they, they knew exactly what to do when the lights were on. And they knew exactly <laughs> what the story was going to be. Uh, I think you, I think, I think you the give them were, more, really? I think you assume they had more control over that narrative than they did. Oh, I th- interesting. I would argue what made that show unique was that Tori had previously in her other shows, they had been much more controlled yes. experiences. And part of what made that show interesting was Greg came into their lives at a point where Tori had sort of lost control and at a certain point she just took the trust fall Mm. and just let Greg document it Mm. and her life was legitimately spiraling, which is a weird thing to say. Yeah. But that show was interesting because she didn't try and um, mediate that for the camera. She actually Mm. let it happen. It's such a special project. (laughs) All right. So let's move along here. Yeah. Let's get to MTV. Okay. So in May... I want to go this is this this is a quick little timeline for you Eli. Yeah. May 2016 you are announced to head over to MTV2 
to oversee development there. That's May. Mm-hmm. In December of that same year, in December of 2016, so what, seven months later, eight months later, uh, you are named now the head of MTV programming. You started MTV2. Now you move over and now you're running development for MTV out of L.A. And then in March, three months later, it's announced you are GTFO. <laughs> so I, I want to read. That's the technical term, but yes. Yeah, I just, I just, I just yeah. came up with that one over breakfast. Uh, so I, I, read, I read this in the announcement from that. Mm-hmm. And this is what I wanted to run by you. In the announcement of your arrival to MTV2, deadline, the quote is, you know, they're talking about your career at, at Lifetime and your background at Bravo. And the quote they have is, he was a contender for the head of programming post that went to Liz Gately while at Lifetime. They just throw that in there as they're announcing you at MTV2. Yeah, I don't know why. Did you ever I, read that? No, I wasn't aware of that, and that's actually not remotely accurate. Like, so I don't know how that even finds its way into what should be a boilerplate, you know, executive announcement at MTV2, but they throw that in there, which would, if you read it, would cause people to think you got out because you you wanted maybe a higher position of life. Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, I can tell you exactly why I went to MTV2, and it was it was not unrelated to why I moved from Bravo to Lifetime. I just found during my, you know, my first two years at Lifetime were really unbelievable because again, it goes back to the culture of this company. Rob and Nancy let me try almost Mm. anything I wanted. There was a ridiculous amount of creative freedom, you know, and they were always pressure testing everything I was doing, but I got to try all sorts of shows. I found my last year at Lifetime, I there was a certain amount of fatigue with just female unscripted programming. Mm-hmm. I had been doing it for 10 years at that point. Yeah. And I was finding it harder and harder to find projects that were really exciting to me or mm-hmm. felt like they were challenging me to think in new ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt like the learning curve, I guess, had plateaued is probably the the most cliched way to say it. Um, and, you know, I think if you're not excited about what you're doing, you're probably not going to be as good at it sure. as you should be. So what was appealing to me about MTV2 was, number one, the job had operational experience, which I really wanted. You mm-hmm. know, oversight of acquisitions, marketing, scheduling. That's very cool. That was really interesting to me, even though it was a very small channel to be able to learn those things in a fairly protected environment. And then the other thing was I just wanted to try male programming. Yeah. You know, it was so different. It was half hour. It was diverse. It was male. It was fairly comedy skewing. And it just felt like that would be a different challenge than what I had, you know, what I had done over the previous 10 years. And so it really had nothing to do with the specifics of lifetime. It was me looking for, to just sort of push myself to try something different in a, in a slightly new space. Well, like you said, to have all those operations now reporting to you is is a major step up you yeah. know, on your on your resume and and in planning for the future. You know, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, no, exactly. And look, and there was also, I'm sure you have this a little bit. I had grown up watching MTV. Oh, I've it seen, was oh, yeah. the most important brand to me in TV for most of my life. Yeah. So there was something appealing oh, yeah, about man. 
going back to Viacom, but this time in a more senior role at a brand adjacent to the one that was, you know, one of my favorite brands on TV. And at the time when you got there, MTV2 had like a robust development slate. There were a lot of original shows on that network. And then over the span of your, you know, limited time there, you know, Sean Atkins leaves, right? And then Chris McCarthy takes over and Nina uh, is on the East Coast and she is the one that uh, gives you MTV uh, to run development for it, which is interesting because Nina was the showrunner on first season of New House, uh, Housewives of New Jersey, and that was done under your administration of Bravo. So there was a little connection there. But then you leave only a few months after you get the MTV job, right? So you went from MTV to, to the mother channel that you, you say you're so fond of that you grew up watching that I, I as well have a sweet spot for the original MTV slate. So why in March of 2017 of this year do you do you leave? Sounds very complicated when you lay it all out that way. It's actually <laughs> fairly simple, at least in my head. So I had gone there for the MTV2 job specifically. Okay. Right? I wanted the operational experience. I wanted to try sort of a different category of programming. What ultimately happened was... As with a lot of smaller digital channels, the decision was made at Viacom, I guess, early this year that they just weren't going to invest in new programming for MTV2. Okay. And so what that essentially meant was I was – that part of my job, which was the part that had brought me there, disappeared. Right. Yeah. Not as a – you know – the job existed in some form, but it was more a fiction than a reality. It wasn't what you signed up for. So what I was left with was the MTV job, which felt to me closer to what I had been doing at Bravo and Lifetime than Uh, what I was interested in doing mm -hmm. for the next three years. So I, I went to Chris and I was honest and I just said, look, I don't think... I'm the right person to do this job. Mm. And to Chris's great credit, he was unbelievably sort of generous in in working out a way for me to sort of move on. Now, you are under contract at this point. I am. And you have three kids. Okay. Yes. You have a wife who has moved back and forth with you. What is the conversation with your wife when you go to her and you say, so I just went from MTV to – to MTV, they're giving me the head of development job, which some people in some ways would maybe see as an upgrade, right? Yeah. Right, right? even though it didn't have all the operational yeah. stuff. In terms of network hierarchy, sure. MTV is like 100 levels up of just MTV2, yes, absolutely. Right? In terms of viewership and stature, right? And you go to your wife and you say, so I'm thinking about bouncing and telling Chris that I don't want the job. Honey, you cool with that? Like, how did that conversation go? Was she As just, I said, she is a very lovely and understanding woman. She's like the first no, look, lady I of think reality. She, I think she understood... She, look, she's she's a she's a great wife. She wants me to be happy, and she knows if I'm happy and engaged with my job, I will be happier in my life. And it was very clear that the MTV job was not the right job for me in that moment. Right. If it had been five years earlier, that would have been the greatest job in the world. Right. But you know, a large part of what I was tasked with developing were shows that to me felt like variations on Vanderpump rules and shows I had worked on previously. Mm -hmm. And again, I've been doing this for long enough to know that I, I'm better at my job when I'm really excited and 
and challenged by what I'm doing. Sure. And it just didn't feel – look, I, I wasn't doing Chris and Nina any favors by being in that job mm-hmm. you know, under those circumstances. Look, a lot of people in your position – and this is a testament to you. A lot of people in your position would have just taken the paycheck you know, and just like, all right. Yeah, three but, years is a long time though. Is that is that how many time you had left? Well, you know what I mean. You had yeah, a four I mean, year deal. A, no, no, three year deal. So I had two okay. years left. Yeah, it is a long time. You um, know what I mean? Okay, so but again, because this, this is Eli Lair we're talking about. It's March. You get out. July. You are named EVP in history. So you were not out on the street very long. Give me a little insight here to working for Nancy Dubuque. Sure. Because I feel like at every job when there's a big cheese, right? When there's a big impressive powerful boss i feel like there's kind of like these rules that are like passed on to people to help them prep for certain meetings you know like how to handle them how to communicate with them what are what are like the little like talking points that you get when you work for nancy dubuque does anybody ever feed you like okay so if you're gonna have that video conference with nancy or if you're gonna approach her with this or that here's here's the best way to go about it like, what have you learned along the way? Are there talking points that are handed out? I don't think I don't think anything like that exists for Nancy or for Paul or for Rob. What I found with this company is they respond to passion, and I think it's mm. part of what makes them really unique. You gotta sell it. Uh, they just want you to believe in what you're advocating for, yeah. and if you do, they will give you a a uniquely long amount of rope. Mm. If that makes sense. And that there's a degree of creative freedom that exists here that I haven't experienced in other places that comes mm. with a lot of accountability. Um, but that's – to me, that's a really good trade-off yes. to have to make. Um, and I experienced that at Lifetime and I think it still exists at History. So yeah, to me, that's what, what – may- and there's also a culture of risk-taking here that I don't know exists at other places. I look at the success of places a channel like A&E has had in the last couple of years sure. with shows like Live PD, um, Leah the Leah Remini show. Yeah. Those are really bold, scary shows to make that I think a lot of companies would shy away from. Even in its own way, Born This Way. I mean, look at Born This Way. Born This Way, 60 Days In. Those are yeah. very complicated undertakings on every level but this company is is willing to uh to do them and that that's exciting mm. uh so you're back programming male content again you've only been here eight weeks yes i know you're probably gonna give me some line about we want to be co-viewing but so you're, so, you're, so you're here eight weeks are you already feeling have you already been forced to feel the rivalry with discovery channel has that hit you yet has it been has have they come by and egged your window yet or left a flaming bag on your doorstep like has it got to that no, point yet I when you're not experienced any of that I mean I will say they're a direct competitor in a way I haven't experienced at other channels right which is interesting no the the fascinating thing for me coming to history is you know I spent so long in the female space right and I come to this with enti- with both completely fresh eyes but also n- almost no institutional knowledge, mm-hmm. which is both a blessing and a curse. Right. It can be a strength. The naivete can actually be a strength. In yeah, but it's also, right, it's, it's figuring out, you know, luckily I have a team at History that has an unbelievable depth of experience. True. 
So you've got a deep bench here. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting for me because I'm more reliant on them to sort of tell me what's been done. What is, what has worked, what hasn't, what are the categories that have, that seem great on paper, but might not translate in a way that I wasn't certainly towards the end of my time in the female space, because after 10 years, you, you know, you know, every channel that every show that each channel has programmed since 2006 (laughs) You know, right. So I don't, I don't have that, that history, no pun intended in the male space, which is, it's, it's a new experience for me. All right. So before I let you go, I want to do a quick hitting Q and a, okay. Rapid fire. Okay. You ready? Eli Lair today. Fun fact today, Bill Murray's birthday, favorite Bill Murray movie. Uh, I mean, I guess I have to go with the obvious groundhog day. Is that the obvious? Ghostbusters I don't. For me. I, yeah, I'm not as huge a Ghostbusters fan. I recently rewatched it with my kids. Good for you. Yeah, good for you. And we watched Ghostbusters too, which is definitely not my favorite Bill Murray movie. <laughs> I mean, I could say Stripes. Sure. I mean, I, I favorite movie. Ghostbusters. What would you say? Favorite movie. Ghostbusters. Favorite role. Okay. Kingpin. Ernie McCracken. Ooh, that's that's an underappreciated. It is Farrelly Brothers movie. Most embarrassing show on your DVR. Uh, and the kids and the kids shows don't count. Yeah, I was going to say it can't be Dora the Explorer. No, I don't. I have twenty five shows on my DVR because I DVR everything in the mail space, basically everything mm. on Nat Geo, interesting Discovery, because I just have to educate myself. Interesting. So, not that any of those are embarrassing, but no, that totally is mostly what Nat my Ge- DVR consists of. At this Eli point. Lair said Nat Geo content embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. Um, producers. Don't do blank when you pitch history. God, very pregnant pause. I haven't been here enough. <laughs> I'm not tired of any pitch. You know, I could have given you 20 examples in the female space. Okay, but as me- I was saying, it's all, I don't know. My team would probably say don't pitch a smoke jumper show. Okay. Because that is, I guess that has been pitched a lot. And, you know, one of the truisms of the male space, whether it's accurate or not, is fire doesn't work. Okay. I've also, you know, heard, this, I've also heard snow and winter don't work. Yeah, exactly. For at certain networks. I approach all of those things as, okay, now you have to explain to me why that's true. <laughs> give me the fire. Uh, yeah, give me give fire me, explain to me why fire shows don't work because they seem like they should. Uh, or don't pitch sports and medicine. I'm also told we don't – those don't work either. Sports so. and medicine. Okay. The show that got away. What's that one pitch at one point along the way that got to a rival network that you wanted? Well, it's – I guess it's sort of embarrassing to say it, but I still stand by my decision at the time in that context. I looked at the Kardashians pitch when I was at Bravo and – was hard pressed to figure out why anyone would care about three sisters running a small boutique in Calabasas. So now you know, there 20 were many... shows and billions of dollars later, clearly I miscalculated on that one. Sure. I mean, you can, you can listen to the Elliot Goldberg podcast to hear a little bit more about that origin story, but there were many iterations of the Kardashian pitch. Yeah. And I don't know which one I want. The one I saw was the three of them in dash with Bruce or without Bruce? Was Bruce God, in the family yet? I can't yet? remember. Because I always hear that is what always made a difference. Like, the girls have been around. Yeah, I don't remember there being a ton of sort of home family stuff. It was much more um, 
just store centric as I recall. And in my defense, I don't think anyone at Bravo that I showed it to thought, Oh God, yeah. this is a home run. Yeah. We have to do this. I think it was Bruce and there was some sort of home video thing. I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to research that. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, me neither. If I wasn't working in TV, I'd be doing blank. Um, well, look, I thought about politics. That always interested me. Um, but I think, yeah, well, let's go with politics. Okay. I, was, I thought I was going to have something to do with history, but you did major in political science as well. So that makes sense. Yeah. No, look, TV news, but that's TV. So yeah. And, that's a terrible just, answer to that and, question. And you just, you just didn't have the backbone for that. We were, exactly. We're, we're, we're I didn't have that. the fortitude or the work ethic. All right. Last question. Hypothetical. Yes. I'm taking you to an underground cage match in New York, a fight club, and your children's college funds are on the line and you have to bet on this match. Yes. We go to this and it turns out the fighters are Bonnie Hammer and Nancy Dubuque. Who are you putting your money on and why? Nancy. I mean, I knew it was going to be a quick answer. That's why I made the question itself very long. Yeah, exactly. Nancy and why? For, uh... She wins reach, right? She the tail of the tape. She has I reach think and height on her. Nancy is taller. Nancy is younger. Um, oh, okay, didn't factor that in. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Two, those are two yeah. huge components of uh, a winning fighter. Who's gonna? But who's gonna fight dirtier? You think? I I can't answer that question. Okay, well, I don't I don't know Bonnie well enough to uh, <laughs> to be able to answer that. We'll leave it on that note. You're a yeah. good sport. Okay, thanks, thanks for Jimmy. joining me, man. Appreciate yeah, of it. Of course.